The Bible tells us that Jesus will return one day in power and in glory. Until then, how should we wait and live? This sermon is a part of a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians called Living at the End of Time. We hope you enjoy today's message. We begin a new series this morning, as you know, in 1 Thessalonians. I was at the door this morning just welcoming some folk as they came in, and a number of you said to me that you had bought a study guide and you've read the first chapter, maybe shared with some others. I'm excited that you would do that. And um, I encourage you, if you don't have a study guide, to get one this morning. We ask you for a donation of $5. If you have difficulty paying with that, um, let me know, and I'll look after it, and I will put your name in my will. So that you owe me five bucks. Okay, there you go. This is a great little book. I hope we'll be challenged in it. And I really encourage you to kind of study along with us. I was thinking a couple of weeks ago, preparing this, of the many, many leadership conferences and workshops I've attended as a pastor. All in one way or the other having to do with the health of a church. I'd go to workshops on leadership and governance, evangelism, the role of women, board structure, Staffing, the role of women, worship, preaching, computers, the role of women. I never quite figured out for a long time what was the struggle with women. I just thought you were a gifted member of the body of Christ and a sister in Christ. That was it. Like, I don't have a problem with that. But I'll tell you, none of those churches who sponsored, they were little churches, they were huge churches in the States. None of them would ever have had the audacity the daring to call themselves a model church. We are a model church. Come and be like us. But there's one occasion only in which the Apostle Paul, who writes to all of these churches in the New Testament, invites us to visit what he calls a model church. One church he considers that. It's not perfect, as we'll see as we go through these weeks, but it has some vital qualities. That church is the town called Thessalonica. So I'm going to invite you to turn to, if you have a Bible or your cell phone, whatever you used, I'm going to invite Marian to come and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Do you just stand, please? 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the, church of the to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Haya. The Lord's message rang out for, from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report that kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn from God, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescued us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
We're going to go through this chapter and see what it introduces to us, opens up some ideas in the, in the, um, from Paul. So it began, as you heard, Paul, Silas, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, grace and peace to you. It was normal for a letter in those days for the author to put his name at the beginning of the letter. When you think about it, that's kind of smarter than what we do. You got to read through the letter and get to the end and then say, oh, it's the letter from Tom. Why didn't Tom put his name at the beginning? But he's noticed he's not writing to individuals. He's writing to the church. These are the usual words of thanksgiving and greeting. We always thank God, all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. And then the Apostle Paul comments on three powerful things he sees. They're words that are familiar to us. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus. That's Paul's very well-known trilogy of faith, hope, and love. We'll return to that in a few minutes. And so he says, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out to you, from you. That word model gives us the idea of a template. Here's something that you can repeat over and over again. It's an essential pattern. There's only one time that Paul speaks of a church being a model. It's here, a church worth copying. And he says it rang out. Your, your testimony as a church rang out. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It's the word really for an echo. God sounded his symbol, his gong, and the life of the church. And they kept ringing and ringing out as a message. It really began, if you think about it, in creation. And moved through the prophets. Came to a resounding crescendo in the life of Jesus. And in each of these moments, God is bringing his drumstick down as a symbol in history. What we are asked to do is to echo that message to be the ongoing vibration of the message of his love and grace in the world. So here's our primary question this morning. What made the Apostle Paul call this church a model church? Let me sum up for you this morning one word. I think it's the word authenticity. Authenticity. See, they had an authentic reception to the gospel. How does it come? Paul says, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, he says, and with deep conviction. The gospel came in words, first of all. The content of the gospel in one form or another is always the word of God. The primary purpose of proclamation, of, uh, sorry, the primary purpose of preaching is proclamation. It is proclaiming the word of God. And the words of the gospel are made powerful through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens the mind of the hearer, brings life to the words of the speaker. It is only in the power of the Spirit that the word can penetrate the hearts and the minds of people. The Spirit and the word must work together. Ephesians chapter 6 says, you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. John Stott, who's a very well-known British theologian and preacher and writer, passed away a couple of years ago, said in one of his books, the spirit without the word is weaponless. The word without the spirit is powerless. Word and spirit go together. And together they bring conviction. They bring conviction to people, to individuals, to congregations, to nations. And the result of this powerful word getting into our lives, folks, is not information. Way beyond that. It is transformation. The gospel in its authenticity is much more than the words that we speak. There must be power, a dynamism, the power of the spirit at work. 
I have a deep conviction that is to be brought each Sunday morning. I pray for that through the week. I pray for that on a Saturday night. I pray for that as I take these few steps up here to the pulpit. So they have received an authentic gospel. But in addition to that, this Thessalonian church had what I will call an authentic conversion. Paul goes on. They tell how you turn from God to idols, sorry, to God from idols, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. This Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. The only real result of the gospel, no matter where and when you hear it, is an authentic conversion. Turning from idols, he says, it's an almost technical word for conversion. Every conversion, you heard three of them this morning in the baptistry, every conversion is a turning from something or some other God, a turning away from idols to some of one kind or another. Idols simply are God's substitutes. Selfishness, consumerism, greed, addictions. What did we sing a few minutes ago? I surrender all. We turn from any kind of adultery in our society that brings a conscious turning towards God. So you see, when we come to Christ, as you heard in the testimonies this morning, we simply do not add him to an already cluttered and busy life. Some things must go. Some things must stop. Some things must change in an authentic conversion. And perhaps this turning away from sin, turning towards God, is another way of describing repentance. Repentance is where we rethink, where we make an about turn in our lives, and we turn in another direction towards God. I think baptism, you saw this morning, is an authentic sign of that conversion. Maybe it was for you. Maybe that's something you need to consider as you were visibly challenged this morning. So in many of Paul's letters, there are two actions that always follow an authentic conversion. There are things Paul says again and again, where we put off and there's things that we have to put on. He's saying to us, there's ways that we used to live and they must stop. And there's now new ways to, we must live and that must start. Passage after passage, Paul teaches us that. Actually, I would suggest to you this morning that an authentic conversion demands that. It's all summed up in one word. You heard it this morning in one of the testimonies. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Things have changed. What has changed in your life? What needs to change in your life when you're saying, I surrender all? And so now he says, we serve the living God. There is no such thing in life as absolute freedom. No such thing. We're always serving something or someone. And what we find in Christ is the freedom to be set free from sin, set free from an addictive life to serve a new master who is the living God. Romans 6, 18 says to us, you have been set free from sin and you have become the slaves of righteousness. You see, we move our service from one master to another master, the holy, righteous God. Paul also says that this authentic conversion means we wait for the return of Jesus, his son. I go over almost every word in Greek in a passage I'm studying. And this particular form of the word wait is only found here in the New Testament. 
It has a sense of sustained expectation. Something we're excited, excited about is waiting for us. When we started to get into 1 Thessalonians, um, some people ask if we're living in the last days. The answer is yes. We are always living in the last days. The last days started when Jesus left the earth. We're in the last days at any time when we stand between his two comings. The first coming at his birth, his incarnation, and the next coming will be his return. We're living between these two bookends in history, these two climactic events, each of which impact world history. We need to remember, folks, that there is absolutely nothing in literature, nothing in history, nothing in science, nothing in our world system that speaks about the return of Jesus. As Christians, we hold this truth solely and utterly on the word of Jesus himself. He says, I will come again. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And people need to, people always want to know when, when is this going to happen? You need to remember the words of Jesus. And when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has set by his own authority. We know this truth. And we live by this truth only on the spoken word and the promise of Jesus. Nothing else. It is a promise hanging like an almost invisible gossamer thread in all of the literature in history. No other writing in history gives us this promise. We have nothing else to go on except the word of Jesus. Jesus says, I have told you. And that is the basis alone for this truth that we hold. It was the same when God gave Abraham a promise of a new land. He said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household. And Abram left everything he had, which was a lot. And he headed off on a promise of a word from a God he had not seen. He heard only his word. It's the same when God told Noah to build an ark when there was no sign of water, no sign of rain. His entire reputation and the life of his family all hung on a single word. It is the same for us. We hang our lives on a promise. I will return. I will come back. We wait on the basis of this single word from Jesus. Nothing else. No one else. And so what do we do? It says to us, we wait for Jesus who rescues us from the, the coming wrath. In the 1960s, some of you will remember that. Some of you weren't born. In the days of what was called free love, there was a new freedom from sexual inhibitions. It was often said then that people, what people feared was not hell, was herpes. Today, if there's an alarm of some impending apocalypse, it is not the apocalypse of God that is feared. We'll deal with this two Sundays from now. What we really fear in our world is global warming. We fear rising oil prices. We're not anxious about eternity. We're more anxious about the environment. We're afraid about inflation and where the, the bank rate and all that will go. In our culture, we are not good at waiting. We think waiting is just hanging around or doing nothing. Mike Iaconelli in Dangerous Wonder writes, we are more than a fast food society. 
We are a fast-fix society. And if we have a problem hearing God, there are plenty of problems Plenty of, places, sorry, plenty of places promising immediate solutions, instant cures, instant cures. The benefits of the gospel have been adapted to fit our quick fix culture so that we fully expect our lives to change instantly. So often, folks, God's word to us is simply, wait, wait. That may be the hardest thing to do because we're not good at waiting. We're impatient. We're in a hurry. Waiting doesn't seem to do anything. We want action. We want instant answers. Someone said, we know that God is faithful. We believe that. It's just that sometimes he seems so slow. So what do we do when we wait? You go back to verse 3. We continually remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that's what our job is while we wait. And as we wait for Jesus to return, our faith becomes action. The Christian faith starts with faith. Faith in God. Faith in Christ. Faith in what happened on the cross. Faith to believe. This is the core of being a Christian. But faith is not passive in one way or another. It always must take steps to become active. Every molecule of faith in us is intended to be turned into action. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. Faith without works is dead. So let me ask you simply, what are you doing this year to put your faith into gear? What are you going to be involved in that will be a place of growth for you, a place to serve God while you wait? You don't have to look very far here. Look all around us at the ministries and, and Central Baptist Church. Places and areas in which you can start to be involved. Pick one thing. An area of ministry and service. And say, I will wait there. And as we say, I'll get involved. Look around Victoria. All kinds of stuff going on in our city. As we wait for the Lord to return, where can you be involved there? And Paul goes on and he says, as we wait for Jesus to return, love calls for our best efforts. Doesn't that just repeat what he said? Actually, not quite. It moves it up a notch. Because the word he calls us to is to labor in love. And that's a strong word. It has the sense that we will put our backs into something. We will work up a sweat. We will roll up our sleeves. We'll get involved in something. And that will call for our best effort. We won't just do the minimum. We won't just do enough to get by. We will do the maximum there. So he's asking, what would motivate us to put, in, to put that kind of effort in? Only one thing, that we will be motivated by the love, the kind of love that sent Jesus to the cross, the kind of love that stirs us, the kind of love that calls for the maximum. Love demands, get the sentence, love demands what duty would not dare ask. You understand that? Love asks from us what duty would not dare ask. And love has earned the right to do that because of the cross. In our city here in Victoria, I am sometimes amazed that the, what you see in the newspaper, television, whatever. I'm amazed at how passionate some people will be for a cause to which they are committed. They will give time 
They will give money. They will give effort for what they believe in and they roll up their sleeves. As Christians, we are called to live for the highest cause that has ever been known. We are called to serve the cause of the living God, to give our lives for something, to the only thing that will have eternal value, the only thing that will change the course where people will spend eternity, and that is the mission of the risen and returning Son. And that calls for nothing less than our best effort. Love is not embarrassed about raising the bar in our lives. Love is not embarrassed to ask us to sing, I surrender all. Love is not embarrassed about asking for everything that there is within us for the cause of Christ. And as we wait for Jesus to return, Paul says, hope prevents us from quitting. Do you ever get to a day now and again when you feel like quitting? You just feel like throwing in the towel? And saying to yourself and all the stuff that you do for maybe the church and maybe your family, I don't know. This isn't worth it anymore. If we were honest, many of us get to that point at one time or another. There doesn't seem to be any way through the wall that's ahead of us. Going on just seems to be too hard. We feel overwhelmed. We're just ready to quit and pack it in. Can I say to you this morning in a couple of minutes of biblical counseling, when you get to that space, just slow down and stop. Take time out and turn to a Psalm, turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 was written by a man called Asaph. Asaph was the worship leader that David appointed to lead worship in the temple. And one day, Asaph was ready to pack it in. Asaph was ready to give it all up. Asaph tells us that he was ready to quit. Here's how he begins. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, as for me, my feet almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. I envied the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know what Asaph's is saying? Asaph's saying is, I looked around and I saw all these other people, some of who don't believe in God. And they're getting ahead in life. They're getting things that I don't have. They're being successful where I feel like I'm failing. And Asaph says, I'm just ready to pack it in. It's not worth it. Now, if you read all of Psalm 73, it's only 28 verses. And it's very carefully constructed. The first 14 verses are Asaph's descent away from God, down to the bottom of his life. And then the next 20, 14 verses are where Asaph begins to climb up back in the ladder of hope. Whenever you get to that point and you read Psalm 73, you will hear a little voice speak to you. It's the voice of hope. It may begin just like a faint echo. At first it seems far away. Then it slowly gets louder and louder and louder until it's in our ears. 
It is the trumpet of hope ringing in our ears. It declares the message that we must not quit. We cannot quit. We have come too far. And very frankly, too much is at stake. It's far more than some inspirational saying you get in a fortune cookie to encourage us. Positive thinking and optimism can come maybe from temperament or your personality. Can I tell you that hope comes from theology? If you don't write anything else down this morning, those four words, hope comes from theology. It comes from the truth of God, what God is saying to us. That's why Hebrews says, we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, firm and secure. Hope is pictures as an anchor, something that's fixed and solid, digging in the ground, not letting us be buffeted. It's something we all need at one time or another that will give us stability in the storms of life. For many years, I, I didn't quite understand the metaphor. Something wasn't working. It seemed to me that this picture of an anchor it, it didn't move me forward because it simply dug in and it prevented me from moving ahead. Surely hope was to help me advance, not keep me back. It was to surge me forward, not drag me backwards. And then some years ago, I was reading it. Someone commented on this passage. And the author opened up an entirely different dimension, another line of thought, another picture. He talked about the practice of sailing ships in the 18th century. When they were wanting to make their way into a narrow channel or a harbor, especially in rough water where they only had their sails. It was too risky to, to use sails, not enough ability to, to maneuver in a channel. And so what they would do is they would put an anchor in a little boat or a, called a dory with some crew members. And the men would take the anchor out ahead of them and drop the anchor. And when the anchor was set, they would pull the ship forward on that cable attached to the anchor. That was called kedging. You get the picture? The anchor's not behind them. The anchor's ahead of them. And they use the anchor to pull them forward. In the same way, can you see this morning, if you're struggling with something, God uses hope as an anchor. Not just to save us from being tossed around, but he has set hope ahead of us. He set his word ahead of us. He set the coming of Jesus ahead of us making sure it's fixed and set. And then we can pull ourselves forward on hope. Even at times, drag ourselves forward. And one last thought. We are a sign of hope in the world whenever we come together to worship. In worship, we, we stand on our tiptoes and we think about what heaven will be like. Worship is an act of hope. Each and every Sunday we come here. You get the kids ready. You get in the car and you come here. You know what we're doing? We are kedging. We're pulling ourselves forward little by little. Each Sunday in worship, we're declaring that we will endure. We will hang on. We will look ahead. And especially when we come to those Sundays in communion, bread and wine are the symbols of what we've talked about. Faith and hope and love. And hope pulls us forward. You are pulled forward this morning by hope. And hope comes from theology. When Jewish people finish the annual Passover, wherever they are in the world, they close it by saying, next year in Jerusalem, they look forward to being together in the Holy City. When we take communion, usually once a month, we say, until he comes. At some Anglican communion services, they make a threefold affirmation of truth. 
I'll give you the line and shout it out with me. Christ has died. Christ has risen. risen. Come on. Christ will come again. again. I invite you to stand. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca.